The Mockingjay was published on the day we met. Gross. That is that is really gross, and I don't like it. Knowing knowing the book is like old. Thirteen years old, exactly. Who? <laughs> it's as old as our relationship. <laughs> but who are we? Who are we? We are uh, the soon-to-be-a-major-motion podcast, uh, a podcast about books and the movies made out of them. And we <laughs> are your hosts, Billy and Cody Beck. Now, which one are you? Uh, I am... Those are two <laughs> androgynous enough names. <laughs> I am Cody Beck. You know when we do an April Fool's episode, I'm going to be Cody and you're going to be Billy, and I'm... someone will listen to that and think that's what it is. You ruined the joke now. No one listens to this shit. That's not true. We have very dedicated subscribers. A very dedicated single-digit number of subscribers. Listen, we love each and every one of you. We do. It's just... Not, disheartening is not the right word. Uh, funny. We're watching uh, Only Murders in the Building right now, and they're just making fun of new podcasts, and he drops, like, 17 subscribers as if it's a burn for new podcasters, and I'm like, I'm happy if we get 17 listens. <laughs> <laughs> Makes my day. Uh, that said, we do really we want to give a shout out to uh, the Demalis. Yep, out here listening to all of our episodes, except for the Haunting of Venice one because I haven't seen it yet. Fair enough. Respect the spoilers. They out here. <laughs> um. So how have you been since we last recorded? It's only been like a week. Yeah, I mean, fine. Nothing really happened. Been playing a lot of The Sims. I dragged you to my new favorite coffee shop. Oh, where that uh, LAPD reject was signing up for the Burbank Police Department? <sighs> Listen. That, my dude's just trying to fail up. <laughs> um, we did have a wonderful weekend uh, watching the Angel City game down at High Tops in West Hollywood. Getting drunk at a bar in Weho, Getting yes. slammed. And then that 2-1 come-from-behind win at Houston sets us up for this weekend. Hell yeah, ACFC all the way, baby. Massive game with playoff implications on Sunday. God, I'm already stressed. When this episode is out, the game will have happened. So, stress not, it's over. And we won. We lost. Edit accordingly. (laughs) Hey, you said we won first. That's fine. (laughs) <laughs> wishful thing we drew like <laughs> there's many things that could happen the homophobe comes back and ruins everything nah she's in like Iceland or some <laughs> shit now yeah I also got the Phillies in the playoffs right now uh-huh, which has that been went a fun time so well for you last year you know it did go well for me until the 5th of November awful day in Philly sports history and I can't help but notice some of the mirrorings that are happening this postseason. Uh, specifically, the third game of the series against the Braves, putting up six runs in the third inning. That happened last year, too, and it happened today. We are recording this on the day of the Bryce Harper game, where he hit a three-run home run, and instead of celebrating, he just stared down the Braves outfielder who had the audacity To laugh at him for messing up some base running in game two. He's one of our own. He's one of our own. Bryce Harper. He's one of our own. And then an inning and a half later, he went and did it again. (laughs) 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 Fucking legend, Bryce Harper. Love him to death. The city of Philadelphia loves any athlete that lives off of spite. Oh, and that crowd doing the, the Braves chop. 
just mocking them. Oh, it was delicious. What a great day. I can only hope tomorrow they also win so we don't have to go back to Atlanta for a game five. That won't end well. Hey, you don't know that. That's true. We beat them there in game one. So anyway, speaking of uh, a game one, <laughs> today Spoilers. we're talking about book one slash film one of a <laughs> trilogy slash quadrilogy slash quintilogy. I don't know. I feel like they're going to do it all Let's, in one. We'll call it a trilogy because for the next three episodes, we're doing the Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and then Mockingjay. Yes. The and, Hunger Games series by Suzanne Collins. And then when the prequel comes out in a couple of weeks, we'll do that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Cody, how did you first come to know anything about Hunger Games? How did this enter your purview? So, I was I had a terminal case of not like other girls in high school. Um, so, I refused to read Twilight. I refused to read uh, anything that was, like, marginally popular with women, mostly. Uh, like, I, I was a Harry Potter kid through and through. Um, so this book was coming out at my uh, sophomore, junior, senior years of high school. I had read Scott Westerfeld's Uglies series, and... It felt like the marketing was pitting the Uglies Pretty Specials against Hunger Games. And I kind of stuck with Uglies because that was the one I had read first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was aware of it as it was coming out. I didn't really get into it. I tried to read um, the first book in, I want to say, my senior year of high school. Uh, I didn't finish it. I didn't really enjoy it. And then um, when news of the movie coming out, um, I would have been a sophomore in college at that point. Uh, when news of the movie was coming out, I was like, all right, let's revisit it. Because there was a acquaintance of mine in college, uh, I <laughs> don't know if I should use his name or not, who was obsessed with, um, oh my god, I just lost her name, Jennifer Lawrence. Absolutely obsessed with Jennifer Lawrence. And he was really into it, so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I absolutely devoured the first book, not sure why I couldn't finish it the first time I read it. And I actually went out and grabbed the other two from the library the day I finished Hunger Games and finished them uh, over the weekend. Damn. Yeah. What about you? What was your experience with it? So when the books were coming out, I was a uh, sophomore... Or junior in college. And the only reading I was doing at the time was plays, working on the theater degree. And, you know, other assigned reading in our liberal arts college, where I was allowed to take classes on Hitchcock and Vampire, which have come up in the past. I would really only read for school. When I had time to myself, I'd watch movies or play video games, watch sports, just not reading, because... So my mom is a reading teacher. <laughs> I read my whole life. And at that point, I was out of the house, and I was just done with it. I, was like, I don't, I don't want to read unless I absolutely have to for school. So I... Throwing food on the floor. <laughs> I dropped a gusher. I was so kind to you during your monologue about how you know this. 
You were. I'm sorry. And you're over here crinkling candy wrappers. Monster. I'm sorry. I wanted candy. So, as I was saying, I didn't even realize these books existed. I'd never heard of the Hunger Games as far as I was aware until the movie was about to come out in 2012. At the time, I was in my first stint working at Toys R Us. And there was a guy who worked there who was a big pop culture guy. Like, he was kind of had his finger on the pulse of what's coming out, what big movies, franchises, that kind of thing. And helped him sell toys to an extent, but also he was the kind of guy who worked at Toys R Us to buy the toys. So it was a symbiotic relationship there. Uh, So he told me about it, and I was like, oh, that sounds like that movie I saw in college, Battle Royale. And then we got the toys in, and there were some action figures, and the one I remember is they had blind boxes. And there were just little cardboard boxes, you were supposed to put them on the register, and impulse purchase. And you also worked at a retailer that did blind bags. I sure did. And collectors will know, the most annoying thing that can happen is somebody who comes in and takes the good ones by cheating either feeling the package for the whatever or, heaven forbid, breaking the seal and opening the box. The cheaters were employees at this Toys R Us. <laughs> and not just any employees, it was one of the managers. <laughs> I'd say her name, and it wouldn't give it away, because both managers had the same name. <laughs> no, but I want you to say her name because it's hilarious. It's the same name as my mother. Oh, fair. Okay. Yeah. Um... But anyway, like, she and one of her friends who worked there, it was a pretty... What's the word I'm looking for? Nepotism? Yeah, it was a pretty nepotistic workplace. For... What is it with you and ending up at nepotism I stores? I don't know. <laughs> it, was, this is, it was weird, because this was, like, big corporate. It was still really nepotistic. But that's... Is there a gusher in your juice? <laughs> yes. That one was on purpose. Christ. <laughs> How did you even see that? <laughs> Fucking hell. Sorry. <laughs> it's like Skittle Brow, but without any of like the, the benefits of alcohol. I want it to be juicy. It's juice! Not the gusher. It's a gusher! <laughs> Let me add juice to my juice to make it juicy. <laughs> So now that Cody's left the room laughing, I can finish my story. So this manager would open the boxes trying to find the character she wanted. And if I remember correctly, we got one box of these ever. And there wasn't a single Katniss. Like, 90% of the box was just the Mockingjay pin. And the rest was, like, PETA. <laughs> and fucking nobody wants PETA. PETA gets no respect, and he should. Why, because he's fucking Cake Boss over here? Oh. Although, I'm going to hold that point until we get further into it. <laughs> Let's listen to a trailer and then... <laughs> <laughs> then I can start roasting Cake Boss. Listen! He's a nice man. We could do it, you know. Take off, live in the woods. They'd catch us. Well, maybe not. We wouldn't make it five miles. Two 
accepts one courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. It's your first year, Prim. Your name's only been in there once. They're not gonna pick you. Tribute. Our tributes, Peter Malark and Katniss Everdeen. They just want a good show. That's all they want. There's 24 of us, scale. Only one comes out. So you're here to make me look pretty? I'm here to help you make an impression. And so it was decreed that each year, the 12 districts of Pan Am shall offer up in tribute one young man and woman between the ages of 12 and 18 to be trained in the art of survival and to be prepared to fight to the death. This is the time to show them everything. Make sure they remember you. I just keep wishing that I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me if I'm gonna die. I want to still be me. I just can't afford to think like that. get into it now that we've taken a little break to collect ourselves <laughs> the cats are fed so they won't be shouting as much as normal i really want one of them to shout right now nah, they've got their face buried in the treats toy um as i was saying about Peta, mr cake boss and from here on we're going to get into spoilers for this you if you're listening to this podcast we assume you've seen the movie at least it was kind of fucking huge just a smidge um and when it was out a lot of people would make the same joke about, oh, so he decorated cakes, so now he can do this perfect bark camouflage. Yuck, yuck, yuck. That joke doesn't make sense in the era of, is that cake? Like, it really doesn't. Although, to be fair, my, my anger at the is it cake is, it's not cake, it's fucking fondant, and fondant is glue. Yeah, well, he's descendant from a former <laughs> champion of, is this cake or not? He is a descendant of the former his, New York. His family legacy is fondant art, photorealistic, photorealistic icing on cakes, and he is just carrying on the family tradition that we didn't know. Like she, Suzanne Collins over here predicting the future. That's all I'm. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying about that. Fair enough. So fair enough. Would you like to give us a really brief rundown of what the book is about? Yes, so uh, this is the first in a trilogy. Uh, of course, at the time, you didn't know it was going to be a trilogy. Uh, <laughs> but it opens on 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen uh, sneaking into the forest outside her home compound um, on the day of the reaping, which is the day where the capital city collects the tributes. 
we find out as she goes through her morning that uh, everyone has the day off of work normally when they would all be working deep in the mines because we are in Appalachia. Coal country. Coal country. And um, she has her buddy Gail, who is 18, which means it is his last year uh, of being in the reaping. And her little sister is 12, which means that it is her first year. Each... Uh, each year, the capital pulls the name of one boy and one girl from each district as punishment for a rebellion that happened 74 years ago, or ended 74 years ago. Uh, this is the 74th annual Hunger Games. Katniss is uh, wanting to protect her little sister more than anything else, so when her sister's name gets pulled out of the reaping ball, she uh, volunteers as tribute, which has never happened in District 12 before. Um, and so she then is whisked away to the shining capital city in Denver. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Cathedral on a hill, that city. <laughs> what, what, what used to be Denver. Um, and they uh, dress her up and parade her around in front of the citizens of the capital, train her up and get her all fattened up for the slaughter. And then send her and her 23 compatriots into the uh, arena. In her compatriot from her district, District 12, is Peter Millark, who is a boy who once uh, gave her bread when she was starving to death. And he didn't even have the, like, the forethought to decorate that bread with, like... A nice landscape of a mountain and some trees. I mean, to be fair, or he was... Or camouflage that bread as, like, I don't know, steak. I mean, he was 11 at the time. Oh, it's just, like, full-grown-ass Josh Hutcherson in the movie in that flashback. Um, so they have kind of a, a thing going with their mentor, who their mentor is the only surviving winner from their district, which is actually really interesting. Because the other survivor is the one that the prequel is about. Spoilers! <laughs> so the job of the previous winners is to guide the current winner, the current tributes through the process. Um, theirs is a drunk, and they sober him up and get him to agree to actually train them, which they do. Uh, the angle that they play is that Peta is in love with Katniss, so it's a star-crossed Romeo and Juliet style uh, love affair to get the attention and sympathy of everyone in the country. So uh, they go into the arena. There's some crazy shit that happens. Um, there's some... Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Children die. <laughs> there's... Uh, Bees. The, the bloodbath at the cornucopia where a significant portion of the field is murdered. Bloodbath at the cornucopia is one of my favorite punk bands, by the way. <laughs> um, she actually says in the book that uh, they don't do... They actually can't keep up with the coverage. The the capital can't keep up with the coverage because so many people are dying so quickly on the first day. So they don't shoot. They don't do anything about the deaths until the end of the day, um, which is a tradition that carries through. At the end of the night, cannons go off and or the anthem plays and the uh, pictures of the tributes who died that day go in the sky. So Katniss goes and hides, almost dies of dehydration. Um, finally, she finds water. She allies with Rue by dropping uh, mute, uh, mutated murder bees on um, the career tributes, which are the tributes from the first two districts. And then her ally gets murdered after they destroy the supplies of the careers because her goal is to... Uh, 
she promised her sister that she would survive, so she's like, I'm gonna fucking survive. And then, um, her surrogate little sister gets murked, and she kills, uh, the guy from District 1 with, like, no trouble at all. Is Kato from District 2, then? Kato is District 2. What the fuck? I thought he was District 1 the whole <laughs> fucking time. No, he's District 2. She kills I'm... the boy from District 1. He's not even named, I don't think. Uh, Glimmer is District 1, no, as he well. Is, he's named. He has a name. It's on the tip of my tongue. I'm not sure. Continue. Uh, so... She kills the boy from District 1. Uh, she ends up then kind of rebelling by decorating uh, her little compatriot's dead body in flowers. Um, she gets a gift from her compatriot's district. And then she... Marvel. Marvel, that's his name. <clears throat> so Marvel and Glimmer are District 1. Kato and the other girl are District 2. Yes. Uh, so... They end up making an announcement that um, two tributes from the same district can win as long as, or two dis, two tributes can win as long as they're from the same district. So they play up the romance angle. Pete is dying. He's covered in bark flower, um, <laughs> bark flower paint. Mmm, tree bread. <laughs> uh, and so they are more horrors happen. Uh, they slowly get chased into, uh, the center of the arena. Um, I'm actually skipping the important part, which is the banquet, which is where all of the, uh, remaining tributes, which at that point is five or six, I believe it's five, um, go to the, are forced into the cornucopia because they all need something. Katniss needs medicine so PETA doesn't fucking die. Um... You don't know what Thresh needs. You don't find out what Foxface needs. Um, but you do find out eventually that Kato gets body armor out of it. Uh, that is where Thresh kills um, the girl from District 2 uh, and actually saves Katniss. It does not murder Katniss because of Rue, which is the girl from his same district. Uh, they are then... They give them some time to heal up and tell the love story a little bit more, and then they're forced into the center of the arena because Thresh dies off screen. Uh, and the only one left is Kato, and they're fighting on the cornucopia, and then it turns out that they're being chased by mutated. It's not entirely clear whether it's the actual physical bodies of the dead tributes or whether they are genetically modified uh, animals that they have quickly cloned and bred. Um, I don't know which is more horrifying, honestly. The first one. <laughs> uh, they are mutated former tributes that chase them and uh, Katniss. Like former tributes from previous games or like Rue? Rue. Oh. Like the bodies of the tributes from this game. Uh, are sent in, and Katniss shoots Kato off of the uh, cornucopia. He is mauled for between eight to ten hours by these animals, uh, and then <laughs> and stays alive. Yes, body armor. Right, body you said. armor. Uh, he's fighting them for a significant portion of it, and then he she describes it. And it's really gross because it just turns into squelching, and she describes him as a hunk of meat that used to be a person when she kills him. Uh, and then the final twist is that the game, the uh, announcer's voice booms out again, and he says, just kidding, uh, actually, only one of you can survive, so they both try to take poison berries, and they don't, and they've accidentally defied the capital and started a rebellion. Yay! 
end of act one. Like, <laughs> it, it really is one of those stories that's, like, in and of itself as a three-act structure, like, classic, you know, action movie, battle royale-style movie. Mm-hmm. But that ending of President Snow, like, recognizing that he's been defied publicly in front of the country... Yes. ...is gonna have deeper repercussions, and this is gonna go further and deeper than just... You know, a sick, twisted children murder game. So, um, the like you said, this is this is book one mm. of a trilogy, but it's also Act One of the hero's journey because the whole you think things are changing, but the whole book is just status quo until you get to that end where she's not thinking of defying the capital, like she is. But she just wants to punish the people that gave her hope. And so uh, that's where the, the thing comes from. But she actually says something to the effect of uh, the most dangerous part of the Hunger Games is about to begin at the end of the book. Nice. Yeah. Um, so the movie itself, incredibly similar. So I'm just going to go right into how they adapted it, because it's going to make sense why immediately. Yep. Um, directed by Gary Ross, uh, who had previously directed Seabiscuit, um, went on to direct Ocean's 8. Okay. So he's a, an Academy Award-nominated director. Written by Gary Ross, who had written Seabiscuit <laughs> and Ocean's 8. And also uh, Big. He didn't direct Big, but he wrote it. The Tom Hanks... Oh, he has some issues with kids, huh? I, mm, <laughs> mm, yeah, we can talk about how kids are adults in his world. Um, second writer, Suzanne Collins, the novelist, actually wrote the screenplay. And as far as I could tell, it's her only major screen work. Did she do the others as well, or did you look into that at you all? You know, I didn't look into that because I have seen the second and third movies. I know, not the fourth. Uh, but it's been... Close to 10 years yes. since I've seen them. He is unspoiled for the fourth movie. Yeah, Let's I keep don't, it that I don't way. know how this thing ends. It looks like she did all of them except Catching Fire. Huh, okay. Adaptation by credit on both Mockingjays, but based upon on Catching Fire. And, oh, like, kids shit. And something called Ticket Out. Oh, but, like, Little Bear was written by Suzanne Collins. Oh, my she God. She was a staff writer on Clarissa Explains It All. I knew that, actually. Wow. Actually, okay. Interesting. Uh, so she did some more, but nothing, like, major. This is, like, really her only, like, major motion picture work. Uh, the third writer on it is Billy Ray, not Cyrus, <laughs> who went on to write Captain Phillips and Richard Jewell. Okay. So. Okay. Interesting government. It's, yeah, it's it's a weird mix of of creators behind the the screenplay to come up with like a young adult dystopian thing. Like a writer who wrote historical biopics like Captain Phillips and Richard Jewell, combined with a guy who wrote Big, which is like a bit of magical realism, but also like an interesting understanding of teens, and then Sea Biscuit, which is also a biopic, and like. It's, it's an interesting combination for this screenplay, at yeah. least in my opinion. Yeah. Um, casting Katniss Everdeen's Jennifer Lawrence, you know, X-Men, Silver Linings Playbook, Jennifer fucking Lawrence. <laughs> Mother. Uh, <laughs> Mother. <laughs> Peter Malark was Josh Hutcherson. Uh, he went on to do The Disaster Artist, which is another probable future episode of the pod. And uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. He's in that. 
upcoming film. Yes, we saw that. Uh, Gail Hawthorne, Katniss's uh, boyfriend back home, is played by Liam Hemsworth, who you may know as the brother of the other Hemsworth. He was also in The Expendables 2, the newer Independence Day movie. I really wanted to make the pull from Good Place, but I can't remember the forgettable Hemsworth brother's name. Oh, the one that, like, she's dating? <laughs> the fake Hemsworth? Yes. <laughs> um, Hamish is played by Woody Harrelson with hair. It's such a weird thing because I'm so used to this fucker being bald. He's bald in everything but this, and he has, like, the scraggliest, like, fakest hair. It drives me nuts. I feel like that's on purpose. Um, if you don't know who that is, Cheers. Zombieland. He's got a like a fifty year career. He was in Cheers. He was in Cheers. How old is this motherfucker? Like he's been acting since the eighties. God damn. Like at least like, he was in White Men Can't Jump in the early nineties, and he's still doing shit today. Um, Effie Trinket, who's never named in the movie. Weird. She's named um, like immediately. What What is her role? Because that's also not defined. She just. I, I assume she's from the capital. She is. I is don't. She like a like a rep. Basically, each just each. Each district is assigned a person to do the reaping, like, the actual, like, body, and Effie has never had the distinction of getting promoted, because you can be promoted or demoted. Okay. Um, So she she wasn't, like, pulled from District 12 and added to the... No, she is from the Capitol. She is a Capitol stooge. She is specifically designed to be annoying and hateable by the people of the districts. Excellent casting, then, with Elizabeth Banks. Um, you know, pitch perfect, 40-year-old virgin. Uh, she'll be doing the three clap at the Angel City game this weekend. Hell yeah. Thanks for uh, plugging the pod for us, ACFC. <laughs> uh, Cinna is played by Lenny Kravitz. Uh, musician. He was also in Precious and uh, The Butler. Did not know that. <laughs> I didn't either until I looked it up. He's... And you know what? I like him in this. He's an interesting in like calming presence, which is what Cinna is on the page as well. It's so odd casting a rock star to play maybe the most subtle character in the Capitol. Yeah. Like he does not feel like he belongs. It's also interesting casting a black man for that role. I believe he is described is he, as... Is he black in the... He is described as being dark-skinned in the book, yes. Okay, because I feel like everyone in the Capitol is white, and I mean like white face white, except for him. So it's interesting that he's, like, the first person from the Capitol to really empathize with Katniss. Do you see um, his partner? Because there's... Not in this one. Okay, because there's a... um, Of course, you have a male and female stylist, and they each take on... Um, my understanding is that the male takes the, the female and the female takes the male. Uh, his partner, Portia. And it's not clear whether that's a romantic relationship or he's literally saying partner in this... Yeah. Okay, yeah, so I guess she's the one who does uh, PETA's everything? Yes. Yeah, no, she does not come up. I just assumed it was Cinna. Okay. Um, we have the duo of Caesar Flickerman and Claudius Temple-Smith, uh, played by Stanley Tucci and friend of the pod, Toby Jones. Oh, that's who Toby Jones is! Yeah! Uh, Stanley Tucci was in The Lovely Bones and Spotlight. Toby Jones, like we said, uh, Murder on the Orient Express and Captain America. He, not Toby Jones, but Stanley Tucci, I think he captures the craziness of... Um, that big toothy grin. Yes. And that, like, ultimate propagandist. I feel like this is the only role in which he is not fuckable. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he is... Di- he fucks, but he's not fuckable. <laughs> he is, like, distinctly, not androgynous, but he is, like, distinctly, like, asexual, like, bigger than life. 
I don't see him as asexual. I see him as like pansexual. It's like a Dionysian figure. Like he'll he'll fuck a wall if it looks at him the right way. <laughs> Fair enough. Like Fair that's enough. that's how I read him. He's he captures the over the top perfectly. Yeah, in his interviewing and stuff. He, I, I know we're just watching it, but he reminds me of uh, Martin Short a little bit in Only Murders in the Building, yes. but cranked up to 11. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of energy. Constant performative showmanship. Um, we have President Snow, who's played by Donald Sutherland. Again, uh, incredible casting. 100% casting. informs. Um, he was previously in JFK, Pride and Prejudice, which is going to be another one we'll end up doing sooner, probably, rather than later. Yep. His casting, I want to talk about. Yes. He, the screenplay for this was going around on the blacklist uh, before it was produced, mm-hmm. which, if you aren't aware, is a website where screenwriters can post unproduced works and then get feedback from other screenwriters. I think there's a feed posted up there, but around L.A. there will be staged readings of scripts from the blacklist, and some of these scripts are completely unproducible. Some of them just haven't found their audience. Some of them haven't found funding what have you. He read this while it was on the blacklist, found out they were making a movie, and he wrote a letter to Gary Ross, the director, more or less begging to be in this role, and to the point where he was ironing out individual character motivations for things in a screenplay that at the time did not have really any President Snow scenes outside of the ones in which he's in the same room as Katniss. That's interesting because that's the same... In the book, there's very little President Snow. At the time, it was like that in the screenplay as well. It was his deep understanding of the character. I think he... He related it to the Kubrick film Paths of Glory. In, like... That's going to be something that you recognize more than me. It's one of, like, the two of his I haven't seen. Like, giving this YA novel screenplay that much weight... He was instantly hired. And there's a few scenes in the movie, and we'll talk about them more in a little bit, but there are two scenes with uh, Seneca Crane and and President Snow that were more or less written because of this letter, because of this understanding of the character. They needed to put this stuff in the movie, and it helped tell the story a little bit better. And it's one of those things, it's like the, the joke about the Hobbit movies, where like, well, Bilbo wasn't there, so we can't know this didn't happen. That's a perfect vehicle, because Katniss isn't in that room. Yeah. These very these are very plausible scenes that could have happened. Yeah. Um, the last is uh, Seneca Crane, who I understand is not in the book at all. He's the um, game director. His name is mentioned Okay. Um, as the game master. Like, I think you meet him briefly. He's more important in the next book. Okay. He's played by Wes Bentley, who's also an American Beauty and Interstellar. And oh one of my God. favorite tidbits about him, that goofy looking beard he's got was his actual facial hair. Oh. While they were shooting, he was walking around with that. Buddy. Like going to Walmart and shit. Buddy. <laughs> Love that. And I don't normally go deeper than director-writer on the production side. I do need to mention that the second unit director was fucking Steven Soderbergh. (laughs) You know, the guy who did the Oceans movies and Aaron Brockovich. (laughs) He specifically directed the uh, Riot in District 11. That's such an interesting choice. It's so wild. Like, I kind of get it. Because he's done a lot of... I don't want to say documentary style, but 
the that scene in particular gave me full frontal vibes, which was one of the earliest movies shot full digital. But this is like 2000, 2001, so it's like shitty digital camera, and it's, it's a hard movie to watch like aesthetically now. Uh, but it gave me like a similar energy to that. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was fascinating that you have. Gary Ross, I mean, Oscar-nominated director, Gary Ross. Yeah. But a name like Steven Soderbergh in 2012 on the second unit is just hilarious to me. I love that. Um, so yeah, that's the, uh, the cast and crew. So there's not too many differences. One of them we started touching on, so we might as well get into it. Um, yes. The book is written in first person. First person limited. Well, uh, third person limited. Oh, it's third person limit. I thought it was. Is it first? first. I'm, I'm losing my mind. No, it is first. You're right. Okay. It's first. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> correct me. I didn't read the book, but I read stuff. Um, movies can't be that unless you're talking about the movie Hardcore Henry. Ugh. Which. Thank God there's not a book for that. Yeah, I, I don't want to watch it. <laughs> the music video that is based off of is good enough and long enough. <laughs> um, so to create a film. They had to make some adjustments to it so that we, the audience, can understand the world without the advantage of having Katniss's inner monologue. What's up, little sis? <laughs> okay, it's better than that. I know, but... And we were talking about there's two scenes with uh, Seneca Crane and President Snow. Yes. And one of them is the scene where Crane and Snow are discussing the revelation of the Star-Crossed Lovers motif and the like inc- and, and and the the balance of of hope and danger that they're trying to achieve because snow remembers he's old enough to remember when this whole thing was deeply political and the point was to strike fear into the people of the districts to keep them in check and crane is younger and he's grown up with it being the glitz and glamour of it all and this this big televised event and yeah, why not root for the underdog? Everyone loves an underdog, to which Snow is like, I don't. Because he understands the underdog is going to build more hope. And hope is dangerous to him. Mm-hmm. And if there's too much hope, then you start a fire, and the fire will burn everything. A spark is okay, but you don't want to let it burn. Spark is all right as long as it doesn't catch. That's the word. What's Thank that? you for remembering the quote. I didn't write it down. Uh, well, I mean, the second book is literally called Catching Fire. It is. <laughs> You're uh, right. Also, let's let's revisit this conversation when we're when we're talking about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because we're gonna have some interesting things to discuss about that. We're gonna have to get to that. That's in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, the other thing is it's a little bit less uh, fun, but the other thing they do is Katniss, you know. She's 16 years old, so she's got 16 years experience in this universe. With the audience, by the time the Hunger Games start, have an hour. By the end of the movie, two and a half. So the Caesar Flickerman, Claudius Templesmith characters are basically there for exposition. Yeah. And I don't mind exposition the way they did it as sports announcers, essentially, telling you the story. It's literally like reality TV show segments where they're like cutting from the person saying something to and this is what actually happened. It's pro wrestling. Yes. Like 
professional wrestling is all about the story. It's not about the sport. And part of telling the story is the announcers reminding you of things that are important, reminding you of their characters' relationships, and they fulfill that role. They're also telling a story, so they're framing it and producing the event, Mm -hmm. which is something that they keep bringing up. Which makes it make sense diegetically that they would be explaining this to an audience. Exactly. It's a perfect way to do that in a film in a way that you wouldn't do in the book necessarily. Yes. You mentioned a second scene with Seneca and the president. There's the one where they decide to allow two winners from the same district. Yes. That is a decision that Crane makes and Snow doesn't agree with. But ultimately, Crane makes that call. uh, Because he, you know, thinks... We'll get better ratings, more people will watch if there's an underdog to root for. Yes. And if they can root for the love instead of one of the two lovers, then people will get behind them, not realizing the issue. Yes. Uh, the second scene is after Rue's death. And I believe the riots aren't seen in the book either. They're... District 11. Correct. You are not aware of anything happening in any of the other districts in the book. So after Rue passes, um, Katniss does the Boy Scout three-finger salute. (laughs) Is that what that is? Is that... It is the... Do we get the backstory of that in later movies, or...? Um... I don't know if you get more of it. It's a it's a symbol of respect. It's what her district does for her when she volunteers. Yeah. It's it's the I think it's literally called the Mockingjay salute. Okay. So so it's a District Twelve specific thing. No, it is a rebellion. Oh, it's thing. a rebellion. Okay. Yes. That makes more sense because yeah. after Rue passes, um, even though they're not from the same district, Katniss and Rue developed a relationship. So she memorializes Rue. She picks some flowers places them on her body, and then she knows where some of the cameras are. She lives in the woods. She's familiar with... She can hear the sounds and all that, and she finds them earlier. So she looks directly at one and does the three-finger salute. It cuts to people in District 11 watching the Hunger Games, and they all also do the salute. And then a few of them turn and look at the riot guards nearby and go, yeah, we could take them. And they start fucking some shit up. Uh, District 11 is... What's their um, export? Agriculture. Agriculture. Okay, I thought so. I wanted to say grain, but that didn't feel right. But they start tipping uh, grain over, spilling grain, breaking machinery. Riot police come in. Uh, It is a very black district. I believe it's what used to be Georgia. Correct. And there's some very non-subtle imagery of black men getting fire-hosed. And... This is actually a discussion we were having the other day about subtlety. It's really easy for somebody who watches a lot of movies to go, that's not subtle. I'm realizing, as I grow older, I don't care if it's subtle or not. Sometimes you need to be on the fucking nose if you're making a point. We went to a screening of a movie. What do you call it? Pre-screening? Yeah. Uh, Preview. Preview. Preview? No. Tests? Test screening? Test, test screening. screening. That's what go. it was. We <laughs> live in Los Angeles. Um, we went to a test screening of a movie that was explicitly not a comedy. It was a... It was actually a comic book movie, I think. It was based on a comic book. It was actually a WWE production, but it didn't have any wrestlers in it that I could recall. 
weird. It was called when we saw it, what, Nick and Kate? I believe so. It came out as Term Life, and I don't think it got any sort of mass release. So it, in the screening, uh, afterwards you have a little survey thing that you can fill out. And there was a significant portion of people that, even though they had just watched the same movie that we had, insisted it was a comedy because Vince Vaughn was in it. And it was not? It was like an action drama? It was closer to the 2003 Daredevil. Yeah, it was like... (laughs) It was an action movie. It's It's been ages since we saw it. We never saw it again. I, I never heard from I had to look it up yeah. after the fact when I remembered. Oh, we saw that weird movie one time. What happened to that? Yeah, but that is to say, sometimes you need to, like, for lack of a more subtle metaphor, you need to beat people over the head with it. Yeah, and that kind of imagery in that movie, and this was 2012. That's even pre-Ferguson. Yeah. You know. It's post-Occupy uh, Wall Street. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of doomed the Occupy Wall Street movement was that it got pegged as being overwhelmingly privileged white people. Yeah. And it's it was a stark reminder. Like, well, Luna's got the zoomies. <laughs> it was a stark reminder of, and like stark imagery to remind of the civil rights movement. And very specific, like, we know how that movement ended up. Whether it was 100% successful is up to debate. Not really, it wasn't. There's still a lot of systemic racism in this country. Why am I whispering? There's still a lot of systemic (laughs) racism in this country. (laughs) But a reminder of, like, that's the kind of, like, regression that Pan Am has taken over the past 100 years or whatever. Or 74 years, I guess, uh, since the rebellion. It needed to be on the nose to remind us of that. There's a very clear good and bad here. Yes. Um, I don't remember what my original point was. It was probably something like that. Uh, so, yes, the, the... How did we get there? Uh, we were talking about stuff that's not in the book? We're ta- yes, we were talking about stuff that's not subtle, and before that we were talking about uh, the scenes between... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so the second scene. Yes. <laughs> that's where we were. We got there. We got there. Thank you for hanging tight with us, folks. Uh, the second scene with Crane and Snow was after that. And it's basically Snow admonishing Crane, saying, like, look at what you've done. You've given them too much hope. The rebellion is starting up again under your nose. Fix it. And that's what leads Crane to renege on his announcement for the two from the same team. But he flip turns again like Big Show. Uh, Another heel face turn. Well, right at the end with the berries. Well, the reason is the same reason that Katniss takes the berries is because she's willing to take the bet that the Capitol would rather have a living victor than two dead victors that def- that defied them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he inevitably takes the fall for that uh, with that glorious shot it's... after the games where he walks into a room for what he assumes is a meeting with snow. And all that is in the room is a podium. On that podium is a bowl. And in that bowl are poisoned berries. So And Wes Bentley is not in the sequel. He sure mentioned though. Oh yeah. Um there's there's he's he's not in the sequel, but he sure comes up. Uh so I actually wanted to uh bring something up. So there is shit, I lost my train of thought. 
Not Seneca Crane. Gotta get that hover train back on the rails to the Capitol, babe. You making me laugh is not helping. Um, <laughs> it's another scene... Oh, Foxface. Yes. So, is it a mistake... Or is it on purpose that she eats the poison berries in the movie? Because I was under the impression, and having watched it, um, I was under the impression she did it on purpose. So what you're referring to is a, a common fan theory, and we talked about this before I watched the movie, that yes. Foxface, who's District 4? District 6. District 6. She, in the training, is shown in a montage at a computer with... A bunch of plants yes. and she's identifying the plants she's doing it super fast yes and if you can let me know what district six is because that might also be helpful i'm actually confirming um so <laughs> what happens in the film is she's having that scene in the montage where she's identifying plants really fast and it's a scene where they're showing all the different like main character kids like the six seven we see a lot of and what their strengths are and later in the movie uh, i believe katniss goes to hunt and Peta goes to forage, and while Katniss is alone, she hears a cannon, thinks Peta's gone. She comes back, she finds Peta, and he's fine. Mm-hmm. And then she sees the poison berries in his hand, she knocks them out, she says, you'll be dead in minutes if you eat those, you stupid, dumb bitch. <laughs> and then they find Foxface dead, having eaten those berries, and they realize, oh, she was following, mimicking him, he picked them, so she thought they were okay. So the fan theory is that she was committing suicide there. I don't think there's enough there. We don't see enough of her character, and what we do see, she's too clever. I don't think it's suicide. I think she's too clever for her own good. Because we really only get that one shot of her at that computer identifying, but we don't see what the results of that were. We don't know if she's any good at it. She could have been there working on that because she knows it's a weakness of hers. Similarly, when they're in training... um, Hamish tells them, don't show off your strengths to the other kids. And Katniss, you know, convinces Peter to throw something heavy to show off his strength anyway, because otherwise he's just dead meat to these kids. So it could be a similar situation there where she's like, don't give it up your strengths. Like, you have this, that's your quality. Do something else in there, work on your weaknesses. So that's what I think that was. It's more likely that not enough thought was put into it either way. Uh, so I was wrong. She's actually District 5, which is electricity. Okay. Yeah, I'm leaning more towards working on weaknesses then, if it's anything at all. In the book, it is specifically uh, they outsmart her, but not on purpose. In the book, she is... Um, she doesn't... In the book, it's not clear, but she is stealing from the original couriers. And mm-hmm. then, of course, when the supplies explode, she doesn't have yeah. anyone left to steal from. So she's actually following Katniss and Peeta and stealing from them. And we see that in the movie. And she always, like, appears at, like, pivotal moments right before Katniss does. So it's yes. twice at the cornucopia. Once when she steals some food. Yes. And then the second time when they have their four bags. Yes. Uh, she... The way Katniss explains it is that the fact that Peta wasn't trying to trick her is what convinced her the berries were safe to eat, and that's why she died. I would love to go back to the few scenes in, like, the game center where they have the hologram of the uh, arena, and you can see where different tributes are. Because I wonder if there's a number five always near one of the twelves. Like, is she, like, always, like, in 
those shots of the arena. Ah. Because you can see where the different tributes are. I wonder if she's always nearby One of the 12. Except there is one line where they say that she's two kilometers away from the nearest tribute, so they set half the force on fire to chase her towards the careers. Yes. No, Fox faces. I, I'm i going to disagree with you. Okay. I think she does commit suicide in the movie, and I think it's because she realizes that she can't beat Kato. She's not going to win. Um, she's not going to have um, the support of the crowd um, if she knocks out either Peta or Katniss, and she doesn't have the skill to take out, um, to take either of them out anyway. Um she she knows she can't win, so she chooses to end it on her terms. I think she's too smart to think she can't win. Like, the, like it, it, it really doesn't make sense because she's shown to be clever and crafty. And if she is smart enough to know that they're poisonous berries, why not try and sneak them into Katniss's food? Or Kato's food? Or stay off to the side long enough to let them kill each other and then go after the last one in secret and just stay out of sight. Like, it, it's... I'm more leaning towards just there was no actual thought put into it. I wonder if Suzanne Collins has ever said anything about it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I seem, didn't see anything about it. It seems very movie-specific as well. Yeah, because her, her death is slightly different in the book. Yeah. Um... In that it's more, it's made explicitly clear in the book it's an accident. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they made enough tweaks to the movie that I feel like that could be something that Suzanne Collins re, like wanted to revisit. Maybe. Maybe. I, I would love to know if uh, anyone knows if she said anything, but I didn't see anything in my research today. I didn't see anything either. So another theme I wanted to talk about this in this is the idea of a strong female character each word capitalized proper noun (laughs) i know jennifer lawrence got some flack when this was coming out saying it was the first action movie starring a female lead oh god It, it wasn't but i understand why she would think that because they are still few and far between but it was kind of like a a high watermark in the strong female character era And I was curious what your thoughts on that were. So, in the book, it really feels like Katniss is the only one that doesn't know what book she's in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because she is definitely doing the strong... Like, she is trying to be a strong female character trademark. um, But she keeps, like, making mistakes and forgetting that she's, like, human. (laughs) Um, and it goes back to her backstory um, in, like, she was 11 years old and she had to take care of her little sister who was only uh, seven. seven. Um, and her mom was basically in a crippling depression after the death of her father. Uh, and there's the very unsubtle... <laughs> the one scene you walked in on when I was watching the movie of, yeah. like, her father going down in the coal mine and then the house literally exploding. It's after she's uh, stabbed by the tracker jackers and she's hallucinating. Yes. Um, Which I assume that specific hallucination is not in the book. She does... There is a hallucination where she... Um, 
Correct. That specific one is not there, but there is one where she sees her mom die. There is one where she sees Prim die. There is one where she is with her father as he dies and gets, like, suffocated. Um, so it's basically, she talks about how basically, like, she is going through every possible worst memory that could happen. Oh, it's like that, it's like that Animorphs book where Tobias is getting tortured for 96 pages. Yay! I will always tie it back to Animorphs. Of course, you gotta. Honestly, I feel like this has way more similarities with Animorphs than it should. Yeah, it's it's very... I wouldn't say anti-war, because it's definitely pro-rebellion, and we'll get into that in the next two episodes, for sure. Uh-huh. We're trying to stay away from like the deep politics tonight. Uh, but very... Kids thrown into... Adult situations, not sexual, but violent adult situations, and how it affects them. So, um, one of the things that was a um, inspiration for this book was actually, uh, tying it back to my favorite thing, uh, Greek mythology, was actually the lottery of the sacrifices to Crete. The Theseus myth. Is he one of the, the shittiest yeses? Yes, he is the shittiest yeses. <laughs> um, so, Theseus uh, is trying to save a girl from a sea monster, but... Oh, wait. Am I confusing my yeses? There's so many. You confused the yeses the last time they came up <laughs> on this pod. I, I know it's Theseus, but I don't know if it has to do with uh, Andromeda or not. Isn't he the one with the ship? The ship of Theseus, yes. But that's later. Is that the one that, like, crashed in, into an iceberg? And <laughs> That's Titanic. Uh, so, Theseus volunteers to go to the island of Crete because, as part of a uh, previous rebellion against the king of Crete, all of the other Greek city-states lost, and so now he demands tribute from them. Gee, that sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Seven boys and seven girls. Gee, that sounds familiar. Uh, and so they go and they seven are... Seven brides for seven brothers. They are uh, put into the labyrinth and uh, basically fed to the Minotaur. Um, but of course Theseus survives because he has the help of Ariadne. Um, Is she a sponsor? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> she gives him all the shit that he uses to survive. Yeah. Uh, Man, those ancient Greeks really need to get on Suzanne about copyright infringement. The other thing is that um, another inspiration is called The King Must Die by Mary Renault, which is, I believe, another retelling of um, the Theseus myth, but it is, instead of it being a labyrinth, it is an arena where all of these children compete. Ah. Uh, Now, there's an actual... Copyright claim. Uh, yes. But it's still, like, Minotaur-based. Yeah. Uh, but, yes. So that is that is where that sort of lottery system and the sacrificing of children to atone for their parents' crimes. I mean, she's not the first to come up with this. I didn't grab it. But there's a, a list of um, inspirations that I saw for this. And among them I brought up earlier was uh, Battle Royale. Yes. Which... The famous story about her flipping back and forth between news channels and pop culture TV. Wait, what? I don't know this. So there's the story that she tells. She was actually finishing up her previous book series. 
which was called um, for the Underland Chronicles, I think. Uh, it starts with Gregor the Overlander. Okay. Uh, and it is, this is the real fucking similarity to Animorphs. It's about a kid, it's a fantasy story, but it's about a kid who falls through, uh, I think a sewer grate and lands in the underground of New York City that is ruled by rats. David? Pretty much. <laughs> Uh, and it ha- it, it's another series that deals with, like, war and prophecies and the effect that putting the weight of a nation will have on a child. And so she was finishing up that book. She hadn't started her next book yet, and she was watching TV, and she was flipping through uh, channels, which I believe 2008, 2006, 2007, when she would have been writing The Hunger Games, was, like, the height of the Iraq invasion, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. Um, So she was flipping between the news channel showing active war zones and whatever pop culture TV was on. And it kind of, the juxtaposition kind of uh, started telling her the story of like, what if war were entertainment? And that's where she kind of stood the seed of the idea sprouted. Yeah. And, and it was a common criticism at the time that it was ripping off battle royale. I made the same joke. Yes. I was young. You made the same joke on this pod. I multiple times, probably. And that's because I really like Battle Royale, which I think is based off a book. Wink. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's also got similarities to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, Death Race yes. 2000. There are some elements pulled from 1984. There's a lot of, you know, influence. Big is watching you. And one of the big... I think uh, Quentin Tarantino on one of the late night shows even outright said that she plagiarized Battle Royale. And this is a man who made his career... Like, fucking Kill Bill is just Lady Snowblood. It is literally shot for shot a remake. Exactly. So, like, (laughs) I don't know what he thinks he's doing that's different, but... Maybe keep... (laughs) I love your movies, Tarantino. That's not a fight you need to pick. (laughs) It sure isn't. Wait, did you have anything else you wanted to say about a... A strong female character. Um... It, it feels like it's something that Suzanne is doing on purpose where she is definitely like Katniss has all the hallmarks of being a strong female character, except she's a human. And that's kind of the, the thing that she's playing with is like she wants to be a strong female character. Like that is that is actively what she is trying to do. But she can't because she keeps getting tripped up like, oh, Prim, the Rue reminds me of Prim. I I have this emotional attachment to this boy because he gave me hope. And, and that's the stuff that I think makes her, like, one of the better examples of what the trope is trying to be of a strong female character. Yeah. In that it's not a female character having masculine traits. It's a female character being human. Like, she still has moments of, of weakness, and she breaks down. And she's still nurturing and motherly towards Rue and towards Prim, but she's still also the man of the house, and she's the hunter, while Peta's the gatherer. And she's a three-dimensional character. She has her own wants and needs that she puts aside for the betterment of those around her, her family and friends. Mm-hmm. And in the future, the people of Pan Am. I don't like that it became such a trope that it's like, oh, she's a female character that is 
a fighter and a badass, and then she's strong. It's it's like missing the point of the whole idea of a strong female character. And I understand this is coming out of a cis male mouth, but the whole point was female characters in mass media, especially big budget pictures, are always so one dimensional. Not always, but more often than not, very one dimensional. Everyone knows about the Bechtel test and all of that. So having this character be three-dimensional, the main character, someone that anyone in the audience can relate to the way you expect anyone in the audience to relate to them, the same way you would write a male lead, kind of is what they were trying to do with that whole trope. Yes. She's a strong female character because she's a strong character that happens to be female. Bingo. Thank you for brevitying my... (laughs) Your wit. (laughs) There's no wit there. (laughs) Well, do you want to talk about the the random casting controversies? Like how Katniss was described as too fat? So that's actually something that I was thinking about because there's multiple points in the book where she describes the fact like you can count her ribs and she talks about how like she compares being in the arena to when she was in um when she was literally starving to death at 11 years old mm-hmm. and she's like I haven't been able to count my ribs this like clearly and easily since then um and she I mean okay Captain America yeah. Had already come out at this point, right? That was 2011? Yeah. So they used the digital technology to shrink Steve down. Yep. Why couldn't they... Why was that such a problem? I mean, I know oh, why. fucking budget. I know why, but also it's just an excuse to to get mad at women for existing and having bodies. Oh, that's... we. You and I both know that's what it really was. Yes. Was... Oh, she's got a little baby fat. That's not my image of attractive. I want a beanpole with big tits that plays this 16-year-old girl. That's District 1. Um, yeah. Also, the other controversy I remember was that when Jennifer Lawrence got cast, the complaint was that she... Everyone was blowing it up into, oh, they didn't want to cast a white actress for this white character. No. The issue was that they did not see actresses of color Period. Really? They saw white actresses exclusively. Well, let's take a look at the list. (laughs) Because I grabbed a list of uh, other actresses that were considered for Katniss. Uh Uh-huh. Emma Roberts, Chloe Grace Moretz, Mary Mouser, Haley Steinfeld, Abigail Breslin, Saoirse Ronan, Brie Larson. Saoirse Ronan? Saoirse Ronan. Brie Larson, Shailene Woodley. I left some names out because I don't recognize them, but that is a fucking killer's row of possibilities for that role. I'm honestly surprised fucking Florence Pugh isn't in there, but she probably wasn't old enough. She would have been too young, yeah. Surprised there's not a Fanning sister in there. (laughs) I actually, I think, I think the younger Fanning may have played, no, she didn't play Primrose. (laughs) No, 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 no. I would have recognized that name in the cast. I would have pulled it. Yeah. But the other casting controversy... Yes. Was that Rue was too black. Amanda Stenberg, I remember that. This poor child was getting, like, fucking death threats. She's described as black in the book. 
And you and I both know it was racists seeing a black character and getting She's. Mad. L- I don't understand how you could have a clearer... She's literally a slave picking crops in the South. I don't know what is more clearly black. This All this happened before the movie came out, and you and I both know that racists can't read. Fair. Fair. Um... But here's here's what I'm going to say on it, and I believe this is a uh, something that the pod will stand by as a whole. This is this is a, a core belief of ours. If you are going to complain that any fictional character is played by a person of color, regardless of their source material, you know, fuck it. If you are going to complain that any character, fictional or non-fictional, is played by a person of color, go fuck yourself. Heartily seconded. Who gives a shit if this character that was made up in 2008 is black on your screen? Fuck you if you care. Who gives a shit? I will say, if you're going to recast like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X as a white actor, that's a problem. But yeah, cast George Washington as a black man. Cast an Asian woman to play Betsy Ross. I don't give a flying fuck. Do it. And if you do give a flying fuck, eat my dick. Is that too strong? Or is that not strong enough? No, I... Eat my 12-inch floppy dick. (laughs) Why does it have to be floppy? That is a callback to a conversation you and I had off mic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I firmly agree with you. Um... The, the only concession I will make to that is if you cast a white person to play Shaft, I think that would be really, really funny. <laughs> if but besides that. If your problem with the mermaid movie is that the mermaid is black. Is that the thing that does not exist has color that is not not your own. Let's not even get into the scientific ramifications. <laughs> It's fine. Scientifically, a mermaid, no, scientifically a mermaid wouldn't, period. So shut the fuck up. She's black, enjoy her singing voice, it's killer. Yes. Like, fuck off. Uh, I... Racists shouldn't be allowed to watch movies. I agree, you don't get to watch movies. You get to watch Birth of a Nation exclusively. No, no, they don't need to get that. Did you see Black Klansman when I was watching it? Um, yes. Because there's, there's that scene in Black Klansman when the, the, the fuckers, what are they called? Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> it's in the title. Um, we don't respect they, that. They are watching Black, uh, Black of a Nation. Jesus Christ, William. Birth of a Nation? They are watching Birth of a Ma- Nation and cheering and, like, treating it like a comedy and shit. And it's, like, fucked up. So, no, racists don't even get that. Racists, racists get one Battleship movie. Potemkin. <laughs> God, no. No one has to watch Battleship Potemkin. Racists get one movie, and it's Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Perfect. That's all uh, they get. Also, I said Birth of a Nation because we were talking about racists, but I meant Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> they're very different movies. <laughs> they're, they're very different I movies. just know you hate Battleship, Battleship Potemkin. I understand its relevance in cinema history and like the evolution of editing, like started with that movie it is boring as fuck Ugh! just no miss me with that shit 
Like, if you want to show me the battleship Potemkin scene where the fucking thing's going down the stairs as the battle's happening as, like... No, show me the fucking... Oh, God, what's that movie called? The 90s one. The Unforgivable... No. Untouchables. Untouchables. Is it the Untouchables? I think so. Um, Where they mirror that scene and it, just show that in film school. Fuck it. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm naming the right movie before I get fucking blasted. Oh, honey, if you're gonna get blasted, it's not gonna be for that. Uh, f- film, film people. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Elliot Ness guy is untouchables. Um, show that scene instead. What was I going with that? Racists. Uh, she was great. The actress who played Rue was fucking great. Yes. For she- for such a young actress, she did so much so well. Now, do you get any of Rue's backstory? You get nothing. Like, you get bits of her in training, like, she's, like, hiding up in the rafters and shit. Like, she stole the one douchebag's knife. Yeah. In the book, it is revealed that she is actually the Katniss of her family. She's the oldest of five at 12. Oh, shitting fuck. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. She is, she is also the youngest, uh, I think she's the youngest tribute, period, um, yeah, she seemed like the youngest in the... She is... It's explicitly described as she is 12 in the book. Yeah. Um, and everyone else looked 15 to 18. Yeah. Um, I think the only one who might not be is the Explosives Tribute from uh, 3. Yeah, I think he may be younger as well. Um, but yeah. So... You get that little bit of her. Um, she also teaches Katniss uh, some more about the food. And you kind of find out, like, the things in the arena are pulled from all over. So, like, she knows more about the tracker jackers because she has to avoid them when she's working. Um, yeah. And she also recognizes more of the food and plants because they're pulled from her area. That explains why she pointed them out to Katniss. Yes. Uh, that makes sense. Um, and then the... Other thing that... You had a couple questions. Oh, I did have a few questions. Yes. Uh, one, how does your name get put in the bowl? So, I wrote that question down after Gail said his name is in there 42 times. Yes. Which, a uh, very specific number. Yes. Um, And then when Prim and Katniss are talking after she volunteers, she says... Something about food, I can't remember the exact line, but it's not worth getting your name put in there extra times for more food. Yes. So what exactly is the deal? So in the book, it's called Tessera. When you turn 12, which is the first year you're eligible for the reaping, your name gets put in, but you are also allowed to, because of course, once you turn 18, you're pulled out of the bowl. Yeah. Um, you are eligible to put your name in once for every member of your family to get an extra ration of, I think, specifically grain and oil. You are... What are you doing? Ignore me. <laughs> uh, so you, and you can do that every year, but they are cumulative. So Gail has... Uh, and oh, this so includes, like once your name goes in the bowl at 12, it stays in the bowl until you get picked? So you go in, let's say you... Like, and then they put it in again on your 13th birthday, 14th? Yes. So okay. if you never do any Tessera, you still get your name doubles at 12, or uh, doubles at 13, and then you get three entries at 14, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so Gail, Gail's in there seven times based on his age alone. Correct. And then he has four... For... 
Yes, he has four little siblings and his mother. Okay. His father died in the same explosion that Katniss's did, which is why he signs up for the Tessera. Okay. And that's why they're also kind of bonded. He's, even though he has two years So old. would it have been like 35 times that year he asked for an extra ration, or 35 times since he turned 12? Uh, it would have been... So each year is... It, it, it's in there 42 times at the time of the reaping for the 74th. His name is written on 42 yeah. slips of but paper. But was it in there 35 times the year before, or was it in there six times the year before? It was in there... Um, like, is it cute? like at the end of each reaping, do they empty the bowl and start anew, or do all the names stay in the bowl and then they just keep adding in until they have to take out the 19-year-olds? They keep adding in. So basically, like okay. each so like each year, he would get the additional seven thrown in. I don't know why I'm getting so like <laughs> in the weeds on this minor fucking detail. It, it just took me a minute to to cat like Katniss's name. I think she says her name is in there like thirty six times or something. I think it's funny that Prims is only in there one, and like the way that she pulls it from the bowl, like she she doesn't even stir. She just like pinches it straight out of the middle. Like a delicate flower. And that's that's like the famous line from the book that everyone repeats is the may the odds be ever in your favor. Yeah. That's in the movie, I think, three times. Yeah. Um, uh, I also believe uh, later movies it becomes the odds are never in our favor. Uh, the other question I had is where the fuck is the international community in all this? It, so here's where this question comes from. Yes. If you and I were sitting here watching the news right now and we found out that Let's just say England was going through some shit. That does seem like it would be something. It they seems would like do. something England would do. Mm-hmm. And they decided, all right, we're separating out each of the four countries of the UK has to send us three boys and three girls that are still children to fight to the death. We as Americans would be like, what in the ever loving fuck? Send the Marines. Well, children are dying. Well, and the are they I, brown children or no, white the children? The reason I picked the UK is that they're more likely to be white children. Fair. Okay. Where is the international community here? There's a couple of answers. Okay. We may get more on this in The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Okay. Um, because the first answer is Katniss doesn't necessarily know, but that's because how do we know everything they're learning isn't propaganda from the Capitol? That's a good point. That's pretty 1984. Yeah. The second... Like the theory that 1984 is literally just England going through its own shit and the rest of the world is like, fuck them. <laughs> we're not... No, we're good. Not touching that one. Brexit. We're done. Very, very North Korea of them. Um, the second thing is that it is... You don't know how far in the future this is, but it is described as it used to be North America. Mm-hmm. Um... And the main theory is, or the main thing that Katniss talks about is there was like um, major catastrophic events uh, with the climate and also wars. So not that far in the future. (laughs) Maybe 78, 79 years. That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So it ends up being, um, as far as Katniss is aware, Panem is the only country that is left. That may or may not be true. Um, it's leaning more towards at least in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Uh, it may not be true because there are traveling musicians that exist. It's not clear whether they travel throughout Panem or they travel throughout the world. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, which we'll get into that when we get into that book. But um, the... The short answer is we are led to believe that Panem is the only habitable place left on the Earth because of specifically rising sea levels. Okay. Interesting, considering it's not the highest elevation on Earth in North America. I think there's some parts of Asia and uh, Europe that would have some things to say. But that's besides the point. There's also some, like, maybe (laughs) nuclear war happened. Fair. That's fair. All right. Yes. Enough about that shit. <laughs> I got some fun things to talk about. Did you know that Jennifer Lawrence was a fucking menace on this set? I had heard some stories. So I know the one you heard yes. was uh, while just fucking around on set, she accidentally kicked uh, Josh Hutcherson in the head and gave him a concussion. Of course. Of course she did. Uh, this set also had a swear jar. Over half of what was in the swear jar was because of Jennifer Lawrence. But my favorite is one of Jennifer Lawrence's good friends at the time was Zoe Kravitz. Oh, no. I think they did X-Men together. She knew uh, the actor who played Cinna as Mr. Kravitz. (laughs) You know, as you do your friend's mom or dad. Yeah. So by the time they finished shooting, everyone on set was calling him Mr. Kravitz. That's amazing. I love that so much. So, sorry, I'm I'm pulling away from the fun stuff. How much of the discussion about Katniss as a strong female character came from the not-like-other-girls energy that Jennifer Lawrence was projecting in the media? There there probably was a lot of that. Um, her... I was going to go into this around Mockingjay, but her time from 2012 to 2015, while these movies were coming out, kind of mirrored the character's arc in that she was kind of nobody, a little weird very relatable and then she became this big famous phenomena she was groomed into a hollywood superstar everyone loved her and then propaganda outlets be it the capitol or fucking tmz (laughs) started fucking shit talking her and she became not a pariah but like talked down on and all that and meanwhile she was still you know a victim of like, was it the Fappening was her? She was probably one of them, yeah. I think. I feel like it was more um, like Adriana Lima and stuff, but I, she was her, definitely one of hers them. Hers is the name that's in my head, and it was around that time. Um, if you don't remember uh, what became known as the Fappening, a very unfortunate name, thank you, 4chan, uh, was a massive data leak of a lot of uh, cloud photos, especially from celebrities, which included some that were nudes that they had taken for personal use. Uh, we do not condone this behavior. Uh, we do not condone looking these up. Um, but it is a thing that unfortunately happened, and I believe she was a victim of that. I believe you're correct. I also remember there being around this same time, like, because Liam Hemsworth was in a relationship with Miley Cyrus, who is in her own right a star. Um, there was this big, like, Jennifer Lawrence is splitting them up. <clears throat> Excuse me, I can't talk. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence is a homewrecker. Jennifer Lawrence is ruining it. And she's like, bro, we're, we're fucking coworkers. Yeah, like, we're, we're at the office every day. Yeah. Like, you don't come to my office and yell at my coworkers for breaking up our relationship. And I don't do the same to you. Yeah. But we're also not in the public eye. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> 
I'm more in the public eye at work than I am on this fucking pod. <laughs> <laughs> um, last thing I want to talk about, though, is uh, the shaky cam. We didn't, so somehow we didn't bring this up. Somehow. Uh, huge criticism of the movie when it came out was that it was very shaky. And the director, Gary Ross, actually uh, intended that. He wanted it to be that because it didn't glorify violence. It made the violence, especially at the uh, the bloodbath of the cornucopia, it made it more brutal. Because you couldn't really see what was happening, mm-hmm. but you could tell shit was going down. And to an extent, it felt like war footage, almost. It, it added a level of realism to it that a lot of action movies didn't have at the time. It was a bit much. I'm normally kind of okay with it, but this movie is like right on the edge of what I can handle. And I know it was a lot for other people. Um, this movie and this book are both a lot about like being watched, being knowing that you're being watched, watcher versus watched, and who has the power in the situation. Mm-hmm. Like the scene at the end with the berries, that is literally the scene where the the person being watched is taking back the power from the people watching. Exactly. Um, but I actually grabbed a bunch of um. Quotes from the book about this exact thing. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of them, just at different from different points. Sure. Uh, this is from page 169, uh, and it is when Katniss is dying of dehydration, and she's like, uh, "The truth is, I feel a million miles from another living soul. Not alone, though. No, they've surely got a camera tracking me now. I think back to the years of watching tributes starve, freeze, bleed, and dehydrate to death. Unless there's a really good fight going on somewhere, I'm being featured." Good hell. Um. Do. Talking about the fireballs, uh, when she gets the fireball shot at her. Um, I'm gonna go for a shot of fireball right now. <laughs> the attack is now over. The game makers don't want me dead. Not yet, anyway. Everyone knows they could destroy us all within seconds of the opening gong. The real sport of the Hunger Games is watching the tributes kill one another. Uh, that was page 177. Uh, the confrontation with the careers in PETA. Uh, when she's climbing the tree and she's just like, how's everything with you? This takes them aback, but I know the crowd will love it. She is getting into the game and you have the whole conversation, the imagined conversations that she's having with Haymitch. Mm -hmm. She's understanding that it's a show. Like it's all starting to sink in for her. Yes. Um, Yeah. The the quote from uh, Gary Ross about the shake cam. Going back to that. Yes. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. He said that he wanted to avoid a polished static camera look at all costs, since that would reduce the violence to mere entertainment and be completely contrary to the movie's intention. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause like the whole point is like the running man. Like we need to remind the audience that this isn't entertainment. This is real. And you're going to defeat the point of that character motivation by making it entertainment for the audience of the movie as well. There's another quote um, when Effie is training Katniss, like walking in heels, presentation, that kind of thing. Um, Remember, Katniss, you want the audience to like you, and you don't think they will? Not if you glare at them the entire time. Why don't you save that for the arena? Instead, think of yourself among friends. 
They're betting on how long I live, I burst out. They're not my friends. I think that's a pretty good place to, to call it for the evening. We're pushing an hour and a half on book one. Yeah. We haven't even gotten into politics, and you know how bad I want to get into politics. Yeah. Watching late-stage capitalism play out in The Hunger Games. Um, before, you, before you completely end it, um, so do you want to know where the name of Pan Am comes from? I thought it was a corruption of Pan Am. So I did I. Not correct. I also read this, but go ahead. You know how we were talking about things not being subtle? Yes. The name of Panem comes from Panamet Circensis. I am butchering that Latin pronunciation, I am sure. It's alright. It's a dead language. No one cares. It literally means bread and circuses. It's how you keep the masses distracted. Bingo. Well, let's see what happens when those masses are no longer distracted in part two, Catching Fire. Yeah. Coming out in two weeks. Uh, but until then, uh, you can find us on our social medias. Our link tree is in the description of this podcast. If you like what you are hearing, tell a friend. If we cover a book or have covered a book or movie that you like or someone you know likes, give it a recommend. Honestly, at this point, I prefer that over a five-star review like the lovely Kate DeMally gave us. Um, it was very sweet of you. Thank you so much. If you, uh, but we don't need reviews right now. I don't care about reviews. I don't need the podcast to grow. We're not making money off this shit. What we want is people to hear it and enjoy it. So if you think somebody you know might like it, share this shit. Yeah. Follow us on socials. Repost our shit. We'd appreciate that. If you are uh, compelled to leave a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Please uh, only be a good if, review. Five only, stars. <laughs> only if you liked it, though. If you didn't like it, don't leave a review. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna this, be. I'm gonna be an Uber driver here. Five stars, please. If I, uh, is there a word I can mispronounce? Another one, so that they can talk about that. Be careful about what you say next, because. <laughs> oh, there is a word. It's a word you love. I will cut you off. <laughs> Before you mispronounce it. Biopic. Eat my dick. Wait, no, you said it right. I did say it right. I tricked you. Uh